Hello, welcome to Star Cells and God, the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science that have theological and philosophical implications, as well as new discoveries that point to the reality of God's existence. My name's Jeff Zwerink. Today, we're going to ex be exploring the topic of artificial intelligence. Before we get into the discussion, though, I wanted to encourage you to subscribe to our channel, Reasons to Believe, so you can be notified of our new weekly videos. Learn more at reasons.org or follow us on social media at RTB underscore official. Excited about our conversation today because we have uh, Jason Thacker joining with us. Uh, he's uh, serves at the as the chair of research and technology ethics at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, has featured Christianity Today, Gospel Coalition, um, and he's also the author of AI, The Age of AI, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Humanity. So, Jason, really excited to have you on the show today. I know you mentioned, uh, as we were discussing earlier, that your job scenario is shifting mm -hmm. a little bit. Why don't you give us a little bit of an update on that before we get into our discussion today? Well, Jeff, thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to the conversation today. Um, but one, I also want to say kind of on the outset how much I appreciate the Ministry of Reasons to Believe. It's been fun to be associated and kind of connected with the ministry over the years, and I'm really glad and grateful to be able to join you today. But as you said, I currently serve as the Chair of Research and Technology Ethics. I also am the Director of the Research Institute at the ERLC, which we're the public policy arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. As of June 1st, I'll also be serving as an Assistant Professor of Philosophy and Ethics at Boyce College in Louisville, Kentucky, and continuing on with the ERLC as a research fellow, and then specifically continuing on as the director of the Research Institute. So just kind of shifting my hat a little bit in which one I'm doing full-time and which one I'm doing part-time. But it's been fun to be able to talk a lot about the philosophy and kind of ethical underpinnings of a lot of the emerging technologies like we'll talk about today with AI. So I think just to kind of get into the discussion, I know the AI that is probably the most prominent on the scene today, at least in terms of discussions of the chat GPT. Mm -hmm. Just curious, have you played around with that at all? And what are your thoughts on what it can do and, and what yeah. it does? Yeah, I have actually. So it was kind of funny if you uh, know a little about the history, this is not a new thing in some sense in terms of generative AI, which is kind of the broader category of artificial intelligence. Um, in many ways, what's happened with ChatGPT is it's kind of thrust into the public conversation. Um, a lot of big questions that we've actually been asking for many, many years and even decades. Um, as I like to say in my work, that technology, especially even emerging technologies, doesn't really cause us to ask new questions of humanity per se, but to ask these age-old questions in light of these new opportunities. And I think that's exactly what's happening with ChatGPT. It's actually kind of fun to play around with, uh, to be able to ask it some kind of random questions. Um, it's funny, I was on a podcast a, a while ago, and the host actually had ChatGPT to write the introduction to the podcast, um, including my biography, and it said that I was the vice president of research at the ERLC, which isn't true. Um, and then it also said that I went to the University of Virginia. And at one point it said I went to the University of Kentucky, both of which are not true. I'm a diehard Tennessee Volunteers fan um, and graduate. <laughs> and so it's funny, even in how uh, amazing it can be, sometimes even on the details, um, uh, specific details about a lot of kind of uh, contemporary issues, it's actually kind of funny about some of the things that it misses or misinterprets or even just completely makes up. You know, I do find that interesting. And I was on an interview, uh, doing an interview related to ChatGPT, and the, the host had actually had it write a poem about me. Mm. 
and there's <laughs> there's less details of do you have to get the bio the biography and everything correct so there weren't those issues but it, you could very easily get a pretty inflated head if you listen to what chad gpt says about you because it <laughs> uh it had me doing some really remarkable things that's awesome but uh i you know just in my experience with chat gpt i played around with it one uh, a couple of days just to see what it would do mm -hmm. And the the exercise I did was I gave it said okay here's an article and it was an article about optimism being linked to long life and I thought hey there's some with apologetic implications here, and so I thought I just asked ChatGPT would you write me an article that talks about the apologetic implications of this article and just gave it the link, and the the thing that struck me funniest was that it came back and gave me an article a five paragraph a reasonably good high school version five paragraph essay about Coco the gorilla. And it just, it struck me as odd that here I gave it a direct link and it just completely missed where it was. And when I corrected, I said, oh, I thought we were talking about this article. And then it came back and it gave me the right one. But it just, that that just struck me as something that was was odd because that's not kind of the way a human would do it, if you will. And so- yeah. Just kind of as you're looking at what ChatGPT does or, or what AI does, kind of give us some intro to what, what's going on with AI and what, what you want to discuss today. Yeah, so I mean, it's kind of interesting what ChatGPT is. It's kind of been thrust into the scene. So I think many people know uh, that the, the company that launched it is uh, called OpenAI. And this is a group that's been founded for about a decade or so, doing a lot of work in the AI space. And in November 30th of 2022, it launched... Uh, ChatGPT3, which is actually a third iteration of some programming that they've been doing, but it was a public launch. Um, by December, it already had 100,000 users. And by January and February, it had become the fastest growing consumer application in history, uh, which I think is pretty fast, fascinating about how many users signed up for it. And now that even as we're recording, they've already released ChatGPT4 and a beta phase and specifically for certain users and also began to monetize the service, including some ChatGPT Plus and some pro accounts where you'll start to pay for this stuff. Um, but it's really fascinating because... Artificial intelligence, I think, is a really interesting technology, especially from a theological and philosophical standpoint, because of what it can do. It's producing not only in terms of generative AI, voluminous amounts of text, some really good, some not so great. It depends mm -hmm. on kind of what type of prompts you give it and what quality of prompts and how you kind of follow up on that. But it's fascinating because generative AI is not just written. Uh, you also see this in terms of AI art. We see this in terms of right. what creativity or creating images. This kind of circulated, whether it was the Pope in a really puffy jacket uh, that kind of took the internet by storm <laughs> in the last few weeks. And we've seen this with other images. We've seen this with artwork and creativity. We've seen this with videos, including what we've long been talking about in terms of deep fake videos, which is an AI kind of altered video of taking a face or taking someone and uh, making them say and do things that they never actually done. And then we also see this even at play in terms of with generative AI in terms of audio, which is really funny to me. It's kind of deep fake audio. So I had a friend not too long ago send me a video and he said, the narrator of this video is an AI. And he had put into the system a uh, specific set of text and it actually had a narrator's voice to read it all. And it sounded pretty amazing, actually. It sounded like a pretty decent voice actor, not maybe the best you could purchase or something like that. Right. But it was really um, 
able to fool a lot of people. It was right. imitating, kind of mimicking, um, in certain sense, language ability or processing or even thought or creativity, which we've long associated exclusively of what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. And so with artificial intelligence, it's kind of fascinating to me because AI is causing us to ask some really important questions, but there's kind of this almost moral panic going on throughout our society about it, um, specifically because I think, and in, in, in my research, it's challenging some of the fundamental ways that we understood what it meant to be human, pre-AI. We said right. that it meant have cognitive capacity or rational capacity, intelligence, uh, the ability to have uh, language or creativity. And all of these things, I think, are aspects of what it means to be human. But to get to that kind of core is that central question of what does it mean to be human? AI, in many ways, I think, is kind of upending some of that um, and causing us to really challenge that. And that's where I come in as a Christian ethicist and philosopher to say, well, as Christians, what do we what do we mean when we say what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? What are certain are there certain characteristics or attributes or uh, aspects of what it means to be human? And I think the Bible actually gives us a kind of a distinct view, especially not only being created in the image of God, the Imago Dei, but specifically what does that mean? And I think the Bible gives us a very clear kind of picture about what that means um, in light of a lot of the emerging technologies that are mimicking and kind of imitating these kind of historic kind of human uh, human centered kind of attributes. Well, I, I find your language interesting there because I find that AI is very good at mimicking human behavior. Exactly. But even with the chat GPT, I find it, it what it's doing when it's writing is very different than what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So in, in your assessment or as you're looking at this, how does that impact how Christians are thinking about what does it yeah. mean to be human? What are some of the things that you're finding there? Yeah, it's kind of fascinating. So my first book, I wrote The Age of AI, Artificial Intelligence and in the Future of Humanity that I know you all have been able to feature here uh, at RTB. Um, and that book, I was kind of exploring kind of basics of what is AI. I think a lot of times happens is we jump into these conversations about whether it's chat GPT or other kind of emerging technologies or contemporary issues. Um feeling like we're flat-footed, we're caught flat-footed, we haven't mm -hmm. given a lot of thought to this. Reality is there have been faithful brothers and sisters who for decades and decades have been thinking about these things. Right. Um, it's interesting, even as my work kind of started about seven or eight years ago in AI, um, not only with the book that we were that I wrote a few years ago, but then also a statement of principles on artificial intelligence, um, realizing that there is a wealth of information, especially within the Christian tradition, that can inform a lot of the questions we have today. But then also we kind of have to orient ourselves about what these things are, because I think what happens sometimes is we jump into these saying, man, look at ChatGPT and look at the amazing things it's doing. And some of it is quite amazing, to be honest. Um, it's kind of takes your breath away when you start to read it and watch it start to just kind of formulate, almost kind of type out answers to these really intricate questions. But what happens is, is we then assume, as you said, it, uh, my language is in, uh, particularly important here, is that it's mimicking and imitating. Uh, what humans have done and what humans typically model um, in a kind of a normal sense or a normal range of those type of uh, attributes. But it's fascinating to me because of the way that AI um, is built and it's built on massive data sets. These are often curated by human beings. These are these tools are also created by human beings. So naturally, there's some level of bias um, in terms of the data that is used and the output. And we even see this with ChatGPT is its answers have become uh, more, what you could say, politically correct. 
um, right. over the certain over the certain time because what's happened is when you ask it a question based on the data, well, then there are human kind of curators that are coming in and pulling the levers and changing kind of the exact output that someone's going to receive from questions of what is a man to what is a woman. It was giving more kind of biologically oriented answers, and now it's giving a little bit more kind of popular kind of modernistic kind of autonomous answers, autonomous right. human being answers. Um, and that's kind of fascinating to me as well. But at the end of the day, we're talking about narrow artificial intelligence. And mm -hmm. I think we have to be really clear on that because when you look at these systems, you're like, oh man, these are amazing. Look, this is doing exactly what a human being does. It isn't. It's exactly what you said. Um, that idea of a human level intelligence is honestly kind of a pipe dream um, in many ways. Um, there have been, um, whether Christian or not, um, in terms of philosophers, ethicists, computer scientists, coders, developers, technologists who have long dreamed or even thought about the type of idea of a human level intelligence or artificial general intelligence. Um, there's the kind of the verdict still out. I have distinct opinions on that. I know many listeners may as well. Um, but one of the things we can say is that we're not there yet. We don't have a human level right. intelligence. These are narrow artificial intelligence, whether it's an AI system, an algorithm that's controlling what you see in your social media feed, controlling the temperature on your wall, the Siri on your phone, or maybe even something like ChatGPT. They have very narrow purposes, and they're not kind of a wide-ranging general intelligence, which even my uh, two boys, we have a four-year-old and a six-year-old, exhibit a general level of intelligence that far surpasses even the most advanced AI machines generally, maybe not in a particular subject. Um, and so I think that's something that we kind of have to get category for in terms of narrow artificial intelligence alongside artificial general intelligence. And then there's this kind of upper level, kind of higher level kind of dream of what's called super intelligence. Right. Um, that is like a God level type of intelligence, which I think actually kind of reveals a lot of our, our posture of our hearts as human beings, when we create these things, we want to create something greater than us that can rule over us like a god, something that we could worship even and kind of bow down to that can kind of control and uh, oversee um, and care for us in some ways. And those are some of the dreams there. But it's interesting with the general intelligence debate, and we don't have to get into this specifically, but a lot of um, – there was an author a few years ago, I can't remember exactly who said it. Uh, that said that AGI, the conversation around general intelligence is fascinating because it's typically always about 20 to about 30 or 40 years away, always. You're right. 20 yeah. or 30 years ago, it was 20 or 30 years from now. And one of the the author made a kind of a quip and he said, you know, I think one of the reasons they say it's always 20 or 30 years down the road uh, that we'll be able to reach that point is because um, either I will be long gone in some sense. You have some older folks that say, you know, I probably won't be around, I, you know, that type of things. But it's close enough to feel like it's real, but it's far mm -hmm. enough away that when I'm wrong, no one's going to care. <laughs> and I think that was kind of a funny way to put it in some sense, right. because it's always 20, 30, 40. Sometimes people will say 100 or so years away. But right. it's fascinating because of the alarm and kind of the panic that is happening, even with some of the narrow forms of artificial intelligence that we're dealing with today, like ChatGPT, that I think are causing us to kind of reflect on and maybe ask some really big philosophical and theological questions that we've really always wondered about, but we're asking in light of these new opportunities. No, and and I really appreciate that distinction. As you know, as I was kind of thinking about AI, my default AI is the you know the Johnny Fives or the you know the R two D twos, the C three PO's, mm -hmm. the, the sentient beings that are not human, not not uh, carbon, you know, not built the way we are with the biology we are. And it just took me a while to appreciate that there are these different categories. There's the mm -hmm. okay, we've got actual sentient behavior there. And then 
there's this very present, there's a whole lot of AI in use that's already here today. It's just not this, it's AI, but it's not the same yeah. definition there. And all of the stuff we've been talking about, Chad GPT, the, or anything that actually exists yeah. is in that cool, fascinating, has some capacity to learn, grow, adapt, if you will, but it's not that general sentient intelligence like exactly. like like has always been there and so i think that i find that a useful distinction and being able to think about it it's like okay ai this isn't we're finding robots it's ai we're building technology that can do something and now how do we how do we think about what's going on with the technology but yeah. you know you you've mentioned that it has these questions that we're now interacting with you know, one of those questions that distinguishes humanity that's always been is kind of this symbolic thought, if you will. Languages, it seems like languages are inherent in language is that ability to do that. Mm -hmm. so got chat GPT that can do that or things that can produce art. Are they not doing things that are kind of uniquely human behaviors? Yeah, and I think in some sense they are. And it kind of depends on how we define that. Long ago, especially kind of around the 50s, you had Alan Turing. I know many listeners will be familiar with Alan Turing's work. Um, brilliant man, um, especially with the Enigma kind of solving uh, the um, kind of the German, uh, the Nazi German code um, and helping us to really turn the tide, especially in World War II. But one of the things that Turing noted is what's known as the Turing test. And it was the ability with something we've actually long surpassed in terms of artificial intelligence is the ability of a machine or a computer to fool a human being, uh, which is really key here. It's that it's fooling a human being to think that it might actually be a sentient being or another human being in terms of the Turing test. Mm -hmm. And I think when you in term, uh, interact with one of these chatbots or when you kind of take a, a step removed from the AI system, it feels as if. This might be a human being kind of interacting in that particular way. It feels or seems as if maybe a human being could have done that. Even something you referenced earlier is uh, whether it's writing an article or an essay. I actually had kind of a funny and I had I was preaching a sermon at a church on Matthew 22 and the great commandment to love God and love our neighbors ourselves. And I was asked to kind of preach that in light of friendship, especially in a digital age. So I'd already written my sermon. I want to say full stop that I think that there are some ethical issues uh, with plagiarism here. Um, not so much that you're plagiarizing the machine, but when you start to pass off ideas as your own that aren't your right. own, uh, there are deep kind of ethical uh, issues with that that we can't explore later if we want. But one of the things that I'd already written my sermon, but I decided to say, hey, can you give me a sermon outline for, a pa uh, for this passage on this topic? The first one it produced I was actually kind of like, wow, that's decent. I wouldn't preach that because I don't think that's exactly what the text says, but I could see someone preaching that. Okay. Uh, that would be a very preachable message in some sense. Fascinating, though, is I ran it again. And so one of the things that listeners need to know about generative AI is that you never really get the same result again. This mm -hmm. is one of the challenges with the quote, well, we'll just cite it as a source and move on. It's not actually reproducible um, because okay. it's actually generate it's generating it on the spot based on a number of factors and variables and the prompts and all of that. So you can maybe get a similar answer, but you'll never really get the same answer, which makes it very difficult in terms of detecting plagiarism. That's another conversation though. Right. But the second time I ran it, it actually gave me a sermon that I just felt like was terrible. It just was not very good at all. And so you see that even in two attempts, one was pretty decent. Uh, the second was just not, it was not even very good at all. It was just complete kind of re reinterpretation of the text but it's fascinating to me is one of the things you said is a lot of times, you know, a high school or early undergraduate or something like this, 
this could pass in in that sense. And we've mm-hmm. seen that even in recent days where chat GPT or other chat bots, and we have to know that generative AI is much larger than that. Chat GPT is a specific product of a specific company. Right. And there are other companies, whether it's Google, whether it's Facebook, whether it's other companies coming out with their own kind of advanced chat bots. Uh, but these systems in terms of generative AI can really fool a human being. Um, and some sense of thinking maybe that a human being wrote this. And that's where I think the kind of question comes in to say, hey, before we kind of get to navigating the complexities, especially the ethical contours of how do we use it if we use it, and I think those are really good key questions here. The big question of ethics is always, and I know listeners are familiar with this, is just because we can do something, should we? The should is actually the ethical component here, and there are a lot of kind of ethical issues that we need to navigate, especially with artificial intelligence and a lot of these emerging technologies that we really should be thinking about. But one of the things that's fascinating to me is it's causing us to kind of – I think one of the things we need to do is step back and ask some of these bigger questions, Mm -hmm. not only of what technology is, especially from a metaphysical standpoint of what technology is. Is it simply a tool? Or is it something much larger than that? This is kind of um, in philosophical terms talked about as in terms of technological instrumentalism, having it's simply an instrument. Uh, we have agency, we have accountability, and what really comes down to is how we use it. We see this kind of uh, permeating a lot of the conversations around, um, let's just talk about guns or weapons. Well, it's not guns that kill people. It's people that kill people using guns. It's just merely a tool. It's really up to the the way that a person uses it. And I think there's some merit to that position. And terms of artificial intelligence, it is a tool, but it's also a little bit more than that. And so you have this more deterministic stream in in terms of technological determinism that sees technology as something kind of almost like an unstoppable force. Mm -hmm. It's changing, it's manipulating society, it's altering the way, especially from a Christian perspective, how we think about God, how we understand ourselves and even the world around us. And essentially it's unstoppable. And I think both of these positions are kind of uh, outlier positions in terms of a Christian philosophy of technology about seeing the the good of a tool that it is something that we retain agency and accountability for. We're accountable to God. We have a sense of agency that I think is uniquely what it means to be human. But at the other aspect of that, technology is also shaping us. It's forming us. It's changing our perception of God. It's changing our perception of ourselves and what it means to be human, as well as the world around us, where we start to see things as just material to be used rather than looking at kind of their teleological focus and design about how God created these things. And often we seek, especially kind of contemporary society, especially in philosophy, to craft our own meanings, to construct our own realities. And technology gives it, it it almost fuels that in some sense, because we feel powerful where we're able to take things and manipulate them and to change them. But as Christians, we see that truth is objective, but truth is also rooted outside of ourselves in an external reality of who God is, how he created us, and how he's created this world to function. So I think keeping some of those categories in mind, especially when we're talking about artificial intelligence, can be helpful in framing what is technology, how has God created the world, how has he called us to live in the world in light of the way he's created it. And then when we get in, that helps, I think, to frame up some of the questions surrounding whether it's chat GPT and generative mm-hmm. AI or, or other broadly more technologies, uh, new technologies, emerging technologies that are coming down the pipe. You know, your, your language in there, the idea of character formation, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think, you know, it's it's very easy for, you know, if you're a little hesitant about AI, I think to get labeled, you know, as kind of, oh, you're anti-technology yeah. or whatever. And. And, you know, as I've thought about that, I'm I'm 
if 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 I were to be just direct and blunt, I'm like, I am kind of concerned about the development of yeah. AI, not because of the AI itself or the technology, because there's been a number of places where I've kind of done things kind of at the forefront of the technology. Oh, this is good. Let's use it. But I am concerned about how is it going to form us? What are what are we going mm -hmm. to do because of the result of this technology? Exactly. And I mean, I, you know, I look at AI and it's like, wow, there's just so many things that it could allow us to do. But I'm just appreciating that in my mind, it almost seems like this is such a powerful tool that the more powerful the tool, the more mature you have to be to use it well. Mm -hmm. Because most of the most powerful tools, if we don't, if we're not mature, we do more destruction than we do good out of them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and so, I mean, it's it sounds like that's kind of the question you're asking, and there are, maybe that's just a different way of saying it, but it seems like this idea that we need to be thinking a lot about is, okay, there's this technology out there. One, what is it? How do we think rightly about it? But then also, who are we becoming as a people? Is that, is that, exactly. is that kind of what you're saying, or am I missing? Yeah, that's exactly right. So the way that I define what a Christian philosophy of technology is, as opposed to these two kind of an instrumentalist view, a purely mm -hmm. instrumentalist view, or a purely deterministic view, I think a Christian philosophy of technology actually takes kind of the best from both uh, positions. It mm -hmm. says that it is a tool. We do retain agency and accountability, but it's also forming and shaping us, especially in terms of our perspective of the world. And even the way we see other people is created in the image of God. I think AI, one of the things I said early in my first book on AI uh, was that one of the big ironies of our era of the age of AI is that we seek to humanize our machines. We give them names, we give them faces, we uh, they often equip them with language capa uh, capabilities. In terms of robotics, we often give them skin, make them feel and look like a human being and even right. act like human beings, mimicking certain mannerisms. So we're seeking to humanize our machines. At the same time, we dehumanize ourselves. We see ourselves yeah. as just merely material beings, that there's really no purpose or design, that we're just kind of the sum of our parts. There's nothing unique about what it means to be human. And I find that that kind of deep, ironic tension is we're humanizing our machines and dehumanizing ourselves. And I think that really comes to play is say, what does it mean to be human? That, I think, is actually the key question, not just specifically in the AI debate, but actually the broader kind of social, moral, and uh, philosophical, and even kind of political debates of our day. Really, at the core of many, if not all, of the ethical questions we ask today is this simple question of what does it mean to be human? And that's the beauty of the Christian scripture and the Christian tradition is that we have a rich understanding of what it means to be human, not just that we're just image bearers, but then what does that mean? And mm -hmm. I think some of our interpretations, some of our understandings of that are being challenged in light of AI, which I think creates a little bit of the moral panic that mm -hmm. we see in kind of right. the wall-to-wall -wall coverage. And this is not just within Christian communities. This is broadly, I mean, go to the New York Times or go to Washington Post or go to the LA Times or what. It feels like every day we're having a new op-ed or another person writing about, oh, the, the glories of AI or the kind of deep kind of pessimistic dangers of AI. Right. And what's fascinating to me as one who's kind of worked in this field in terms of ethics and philosophy for a few a number of years now is that we typically have one of those two kind of gut reactions. I think mm -hmm. some of us are just really like, man, look at all the good here. We're so like optimistic, you know, technology is a good gift from God. And all of those things are true, by the way, yeah. but it's, it's a good gift from God. Look at all the benefits that we can usher in. So it's kind of that move fast and break things mantra from Silicon Valley. 
you know, is this really a problem? Do we really need to? Yes, there's some dangers. Well, we can mitigate those and kind of keep pushing headlong into innovation. The flip side of that coin is this deep pessimism, almost like an anti-technology where, you know, if you're not fully supportive of it, you must be completely against it type of that Luddite mentality. I think actually both of those are not proper Christian responses. Exactly to the point you made, Jeff, is that I believe not only is a Christian philosophy of technology not an instrumentalist or a deterministic view, it's also not a purely optimistic or a pessimistic view. Right. It's actually a more realistic kind of perspective uh, that's cult about the cultivation of wisdom. And mm -hmm. I think that's exactly what you were kind of getting at is that we need to slow down in an age that wants us to go faster, faster, faster to seek more convenience and benefit kind of as the overriding principle and kind of governing principle to slow down, ask some of these hard questions and to realize that it is about character formation. It is about cultivating those virtues about how God has called us to live in light of what he has already done. And I think that will help to frame up some of them. That's, there are not easy answers here. Mm -hmm. I want to be very clear. I mean, even in a podcast like this, there's no way we're going to be able to address all of the ethical issues that kind of are flowing from some of these advancements and these innovations. But hopefully this is a good kind of starter to say, okay, how do we frame up the conversation? How do we seek to cultivate wisdom and the virtues in this and the formation of what it truly means to be human? And then start to ask that question, because I think the answer to that question will directly inform how we navigate a lot of these pressing challenges with AI, especially generative AI today. So I have a uh... You know, I was just kind of thinking about this that, uh, you know, I've had the benefit of my job gives me time to go look more in depth in certain things, especially as they're related to science faith issues. And so I've had a chance to look at, okay, what is chat GPT or these generative mm -hmm. AIs? What are they doing? And, you know, just the reality of it is that chat GPT gives you responses that sound remarkably human. Yeah. But the way it's doing it is fundamentally very different than the way you and I do things. You know, we're mm -hmm. sitting here, we're having a conversation. So when you're thinking about words and when I'm thinking about words, I'm like, okay, there's this idea I want to communicate. How do I put it into words? How do I communicate it? The chatbots largely are saying, here's this set of words. What's the next best word to put in there? You know, I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's a very different approach, which even though in appearance they look similar, you know, the chat GPT and a good high school student, they're similar types of outputs. They're just done very differently. And so that mm -hmm. recognition helps me keep this distinction of, yes, it looks human, but it's not. So I guess yeah. my question is, what are some things we can do, particularly as Christians, but as humans in general, that help us keep a proper perspective that allows us to use the benefits that AI is going to bring, but avoid the, the, the perils that are kind of inherent with the power of the tool, if you will. Yeah. I think you point out something really, uh, really important there in terms of what these systems are actually doing. I think sometimes, you know, the idea of it's there, many AIs, not all, but many AIs are not kind of a black box that we really don't understand how they're working. At the core of it, this is AI is non-biological intelligence. It's a computer system running advanced calculations. And so that when you realize that it's ultimately coming down to really uh, fancy math in some sense, and I'm not a mathematician, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a coder, but when you say in some sense, it's a math, it's a game of probability. It's actually kind of fascinating with chat GPT, because as you said, it's, it's, it has one word and then it's 
uh, kind of running a calculation on the probability of the second word and then the third mm -hmm. word. So what's fascinating, if you ask it questions for which it has no base knowledge in terms of information or data, it starts to make things up. So you can ask it a question about what's the most influential. Somebody ran this the other day, and I thought it was funny. They said, what's the most influential economics article written in the 20th century? Something you would think would be kind of a, I could Google or I could go to Wikipedia and pretty probably pretty quickly find now influential is somebody we de we define that in different ways, but I can by and large, get, maybe get a list of two or three of the most influential or most cited or something like that. It was actually completely making things up, which is fascinating to me because what it was doing is it was taking the words that occur in the most, uh, the most kind of influential papers or something like that. It was taking an author that is a real person creating a title that sounds really believable, which is kind of funny in an indictment on sometimes <laughs> on academics that we have very predictable titles uh, right. because much of what the P in chat GPT stands for predictive. Uh, okay. So we have to realize that the, the outputs are going to be very predictable in some sense right. because it's based on logic. It's based on uh, certain kind of probabilities, but it would make up an entire title that sounded legitimate that has never been written or never actually been published, especially <laughs> by the person that was cited. So a trained listener or a trained eye um, especially would be able to pick up on some of those inconsistencies. Many have said and kind of one of the baseline kind of guardrails and kind of ethical uses is don't trust anything the AI says. Just like you wouldn't cite Wikipedia, I think most of us were raised, at least my, oh. my generation, uh, beat into me by professors and teachers. You never, ever, ever cite Wikipedia, period. Right. You can use it to generally get an idea of a question or an issue or an idea, right. but do not cite it because it's unreliable. The same is true with AI. You cannot trust these machines because they are they inevitably not only are created by fallible and broken human beings, imperfect human beings, they themselves are imperfect tools. They're never going to completely and totally get these things right. So having that kind of eye of skepticism in terms of the outputs can be really helpful because it can be a discerning eye to pick up on some of the factual inconsistencies or conceptual inconsistencies. But to me, it really comes down to that question of what does it mean to be human? And mm -hmm. realizing that there's a difference is the famed German philosopher, um, Robert Spayman, some may be familiar with his work, wrote a really influential book called Persons. And I love his subtitle. He says the difference between someone and something. And mm -hmm. I, I, that was a really profound uh, kind of perspective of what does it mean to be a person in his language or what does it mean to be a human is that there's a difference between being a subject and an object. He'll say that there's a difference, especially even in kind of artificial intelligence, a difference between what it means to be human as, an, as a subject, as a rational, cognitive, sentient creature created in the image of God in the Christian tradition. And there's a difference between that and an object. And so when we start to blur the lines between that, and we see that with AI kind of a blurring between in terms of how we define what it means to be human in terms of our capacities, in terms of our output, in terms of certain attributes that we may manifest, right. when those are mimicked or imitated by machines, uh -huh. we start to get a lot of confusion um, and kind of a blurring of the lines between someone and something. And I think that's something we have to keep in mind is that we're dealing with objects. We're dealing with things. These are not, uh, you know, I don't have, I have pretty strong views on terms of sentience and 
some of those questions about general intelligence that we kind of hinted on earlier, um, where I'm not sure that's actually something that's possible. I, I kind of would uh, draw a line and say it's not from a philosophical and theological perspective uh, to create something like a human being, because that's something that is God's prerogative. God created us. We create like God, but not exactly like God. I think there's a pretty uh, firm distinction, especially in the book of Genesis. But that idea that we're the difference between someone and something, I think is actually really, really key here. Um, because while there's a lot of mimicking and maybe there's a lot of imitating, uh, there's something fundamentally different. And I think, especially from a theological and philosophical perspective, that that actually comes down to an ontological question, specifically of a status, that God has created us as an image. We all, we do bear attributes. These are kind of historic understandings of the image of God, specifically in the Christian tradition, is a substantive view. There's something like our intellect, our reason, our rational capacity, use of language, something like that. A relational view in terms of uh, the capacity to cultivate relationships with God, but with other people, having kind of that gregarious sense, that sociability as well as kind of a latter view that's especially popular in reform circles today, a functional view where we we function, we have to have jobs, we, we are to represent God in some mm -hmm. senses, known as the vice regency view. All of those views, I think, have huge strengths and are especially modeled in scripture, but they're all attributes. They're all capacities uh, mm -hmm. that we model in varying kind of levels as humanity from the preborn to natural death and all in between. Right. Some of us model those various capacities at different ranges. So when I think when you say, what does it mean to be human? And what is it? What is this? What are these machines is we have to come back to is that we're created in the image of God. That's a unique status. It's a designation. You are a human being. Thus, you have dignity. Right. Now, that dignity conversation is also a very com uh, mm -hmm. complicated and discussed matter, especially in philosophy. But that idea that you have dignity, inherent dignity, value, and worth because of how God made you as a status that's inalterable. It cannot be changed. It cannot be lost. It cannot be gained. It's not something that we have control over. It's a reality, a status that has been assigned to us. Mm -hmm. That then, from that basis, I think we can start to have some really productive conversations about how we use artificial intelligence, how we develop it, and kind of that vision of innovation about kind of asking some of those larger ethical questions. That's 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 a fascinating discussion because you know I'm just sitting here thinking about the various places where that's played out and the the instance that came to mind was a number of months ago, maybe been closer to a year ago now, where uh, there was a Google engineer, software engineer working exactly. with one of their uh, chat bots that he became convinced that the chat bot was sentient. And what's interesting is that the basis for that was looking at the responses that it gave to things. And so there's this very much, uh, not an instrumental, but it's like you're looking for measures of markers mm -hmm. of sentience or intelligence, which is a little different from what I get you're saying here, which, mm -hmm. yes, there are markers or things that you look at, but sentience isn't, do you meet the markers? The markers are a reflection of the sentience, if exactly. you Exactly. So how as how do how would you recommend? Because it seems like a lot of the discussion in today's society is about what are your capabilities? What can you do? Can mm -hmm. If we can talk, we can interact, we can think. If the machine can do that, well, isn't it sentient? Um, so how how would you recommend, because that's a very counter-cultural discussion to have, mm -hmm. being able to do that? Because that's not the way most people are thinking about this, it doesn't seem. 
Exactly. And I mean, one of the prevailing kind of ethical theories of our day, whether we realize it or not, many of us operate out of a more utilitarian mindset. Mm. We're looking kind of what's in it for me, what's the outlook, what's the product, what's convenient, what's efficient. Uh, this is something that when you get into the questions of a philosophy of technology, somebody who's been very influential on me um, and my thought in this area, even though I disagree with him at points, um, is a gentleman of a French sociologist named Jacques Ellul. And Ellul was much more of a technological determinist. He kind of took it in terms of this almost unstoppable nature of technology, which I, where I disagree with him on. He was a French Protestant, very brilliant thinker, uh, very grateful for the way that he kind of helps to reframe and kind of, um, I always talk about in terms of thought is we're often a people of the pendulum. We've kind of swung when we kind of, we see an issue, we overcorrect. And that's where I think kind of Ellul saw an issue in terms of how specifically the church, but really broader society thought about technology. And I think he overcorrected a bit. And so I would kind of want to restrain that a little bit to say, yes, it does form us and shape us, but maybe not in the terms of we have no power agency or accountability type of thing and how we use it. Um, but that status-based approach, I think, is a very helpful framing for navigating some of these because, as we've already talked about, we live in a very utilitarian kind of mindset. That's actually the prevailing ethical theories mm -hmm. of our day, especially in philosophical ethics, in terms of what's the utility, what's the benefit, and is it going to benefit individuals in terms of an individual autonomy and kind of the dignity rights and things like that, or is it more of kind of what it benefits society? Right. Well, the problem when you have a utilitarian mindset is the majority always wins, right. which means the minorities always lose mm -hmm. because you're saying, what's the greatest amount of benefit? This is John Stuart Mill. What's the greatest of benefit or the greatest number of kind of greatest benefit for the greatest number of people? Well, that means there are going to be people who naturally lose out on that or have their rights trampled upon if you take a very kind of purely utilitarian mindset. And that's been altered. I don't want to say that's what all moral philosophers of our day at, hold to at all because it's not. Many hold to various virtue theories or deontology or a number of myriads, um, kind of other philosophical families of ethics. But when you take that very utilitarian mindset and you measure someone's value, dignity, and worth based on how what they contribute or what they do, what happens there, and even outside of the AI conversation, is you start to look at people as kind of the sum of their parts and their output and their attributes. So what happens when you have someone who doesn't have those capabilities? Right. What happens when you have someone who doesn't have the the an output that is high enough to, quote, deserve dignity, value, and respect or something to that matter? So even outside of the AI conversation, we see this dehumanization happening in our society, whether it's looking at someone like the preborn who's in the mother's womb who isn't able to exhibit you know, quote, consciousness or intelligence or uh, communication abilities and things like that. So we start to say, well, this really isn't a human being. It's just a clump of cells. Or we start to look at maybe someone like my 94-year-old grandmother before she died was laying in her bed. She didn't contribute anything to society at that point. You know, right. she was actually taking resources to be able to stay alive in some sense. Wasn't contributing. She wasn't communicating with us. She didn't have the cognitive capability that she once had. Uh, mm -hmm. None of that was being exhibited in that moment. But I know from the Christian scriptures that she is a daughter of God. Uh, that she is an image bearer of the almighty God, and she has infinite value and worth because of who she is, not because of what she does. That is right. versus does, that ontological status versus the attributes actually is something that I think is a profound kind of uh, paradigm shift. And I think it's especially helpful in AI, just yeah. because these machines can do a lot and maybe have high amounts of output. And the things we have to be honest to say, the things it's doing now 
maybe in five or 10 years, 15 years down the road, we're going to look back and go, wasn't that cute? Look at how amazing <laughs> these machines are today. Look at all of what they're doing. That does not connote their value, their worth, or these idea of rights or dignity or any of that, because it's not something we can assign. Right. It's not something that is assigned to us in gradations. It's something that's that inalterable status by basis of being human. You are an image bearer of the almighty God, whether you're uh, pre kind of uh, pre-born or all the way up to the end of life. Um, that holistic picture of human dignity, I think, helps to drive the day, meaning that even the most advanced technological machines and the come, that comes out with these amazing outputs and these tools and uh, the amazing things that could happen and also some of the dangerous things that can happen. And I think we should probably talk about some of the dangers there as well. One of that, even the most advanced machines aren't going to be able to change that. They can't surmount or kind of overcome this idea that we're human beings. And the best part is that we created these things. So I think there's actually kind of an interesting biblical parallel from God creating us and uh, we sought to rebel against God and to become like gods ourselves. So we start to create these things, as many have said, uh, especially Noreen Hertzfeld, who's been influential in my life on this as well. She talks at her book on AI is called In Our Image. So it's not just that we're created in God's image, it's that we're then creating things in our own image in some sense. Mm -hmm. And that idea that these machines are more powerful than us kind of conjures to me at least an Exodus 32 moment where you have this golden calf kind of mentality of we created these things out of the things that we, we have around us. And then we seek to bow down and worship them as if they're greater than us. And I think that's a profound kind of theological point that we need to take into account when we're talking about artificial intelligence is there's always going to be that distinction between being a person, being a subject, someone versus, as Robert Spain will say, something. And I think that's a status that cannot be changed, even no matter how advanced these machines may become. No, I, I think that's a very powerful point. I appreciate the way you say that. And, you know, you mentioned the discussion about how dangerous, you know, the, the dangers of this. And a couple of things ring mind. One, I think throughout history, you can probably uniformly or universally show that anytime we have devalued a group of humans for one reason or another, whether it's a utilitarian, whether it's, you know, it is always that 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 often leads to the atrocities that we have seen mm -hmm. that there's there's something other than inherent value being placed on the humans but you know i also see with this technology that um anything that it allows us to do well very trivially can be used for nefarious purposes you know the exactly. example another fellow out of our scholar community sean h was talked about uh developing drugs using ai that can search through the literature and say hey these things can do this and you give it various flags and so you can get things that are toxic to cancer or whatever but just flipping one of those flags also enables you to make a bioweapon so mm -hmm. it's the the promise and the peril are inherent in the technology. It's not anything that you can get the promise without the peril in the technology itself. Yeah. So as, as you look at this from a, there are dangers involved. How, what are your thoughts there? I mean, I know, I know you wanted to venture there. So this is your opportunity to venture. Oh, there. yeah. No, I think that's a, a really good point, especially in development of drugs. I mean, in terms of biomedical technologies, bioethics, this is a huge area and uh, an area that I, I I hope and pray that more and more Christians will step into in mm -hmm. terms of the broader kind of ethical contours, philosophical and theological ethics, getting into a lot of the biomedical stuff. There's a lot of really important questions about transhumanism that needs to be asked. 
um, in terms of not only what does it mean to be human, but that desire to transcend our humanity. And how do we think about that as Christians, I think are some helpful questions to be asked. One of them that's kind of interesting, that's not given a lot of coverage, it is in certain circles, but not kind of more broadly, is generative, the disruptive impact of something like generative AI in creating misinformation, fake news, kind of mm -hmm. uh, conspiracy theories like that, that we have already seen with social media. The, none of these things are new. And I have to caveat that because every time I talk about artificial, or excuse me, every time I talk about misinformation, conspiracy theories, disinformation, I get a kind of a lot of eye roll, like it's super political. No one wants to talk about it. You know, this idea that I can deem anything I don't like is disinformation or misinformation. That's true. That does happen. But we also can say that none of these things are really new per se. Right. Propaganda has been along or around for a very, very long time. It's something I discuss at length in a new volume called The Digital Public Square, where I have a chapter on some of the philosophical underpinnings that we've already talked about in terms of what is technology. I have a second chapter in that volume, edited volume. Um, and the second chapter is on misinformation, disinformation, kind of showing that these things aren't really new phenomenon per se, but we have the ability to scale them at, as and we've right. never yeah. had in, in the past. Up until this point, we've had the ability in terms of social media to share and to disseminate these things at a mass scale where a single person uh, with a nefarious intent and some content can actually share it with the entire world. We've seen things go viral. We've seen things mm -hmm. in terms of clickbait and all of that. So the sharing apparatus has already been there. Now we have the creation tool, right? which is really scary to me, to be really honest with you, is the ability to create misinformation, conspiracy theories, disinformation, fake news, whatever you want to call it, um, at a mass scale. So not only can we share it at a mass scale, but now we can also create it at a mass scale. Mm -hmm. And you can just imagine the disruption that can and will flow from this. This isn't a, a hypothetical of maybe one day it will. We're already seeing whether it's uh, Amazon's Kindle store. There's a, a Reuters story just a couple months ago that I thought was pretty fascinating that said there's already a new category on Amazon in terms of books. And it was either written by chat gpt or uh, in collaboration with chat gpt and there are books that are being produced now granted i'm not <laughs> saying these are great books and they're selling a lot but they're the information is hitting yeah. the public square into the marketplace um, of these books that are created in a couple hours um, utilizing these machines maybe in collaboration or quote partnership which i think there's some language that we need to be really careful with yes. in terms of ai um of this kind of proliferating in this, and we see this even in bot farms and social media and kind of being able to sway whether it's uh, political issues, social issues, moral issues of the day. That's an area I think that's really disruptive that's unique to generative AI as opposed to some of the other forms of artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. But for me, kind of the central and animating question or principle that I think we need to be thinking, the grid in which we need to make these ethical decisions, we've kind of hinted at it throughout the podcast, is this concept of human dignity. And that the idea that we're created in God's image, meaning our value, dignity, and worth is not rooted in what we do or who we are per se, but it's rooted in who made us and whose mm -hmm. image we are created in. Thus, it's not something that we get to determine. We, we get to decide. We get to remove or assign value, moral worth and value, but it's something that comes from outside of us that I think is a a very helpful way of framing up a lot of these things, whether it's the proliferation of fake news and misinformation um, created by these things, the upending of uh, certain maybe industries. Um, as a writer, it kind of is challenging to me. It's actually kind of an encouragement in some sense to do better work 
that can outpace these machines and to do things that aren't predictable or just kind of broilerplate or basic, but to actually sink my teeth into my craft and to live out what it means to be human uniquely in that specific calling that God has given me to do better work. Um, if we're honest, I think a lot of times, a lot of the blogs and po books and articles and things like that, that we see out today, you know, many of which are decent. They're just not always great. Some books needed to be articles. Some articles needed to be tweets. Some tweets needed, never needed to exist, <laughs> um, as one of my friends has said. And so that idea of doing better work and kind of leaning into that unique kind of level of human creativity as a capacity, as an attribute that not all of us have, but leaning on into that and kind of get letting human dignity be the framework in mm -hmm. which we navigate all of the questions of our day, specifically with emerging technologies, I think can and will help to frame up these conversations because there may be a time and there, it seems like we're getting closer and closer each day where there'll be a time where I think we're going to have to say, we don't, we should not pursue this. It's too dangerous. The dangers outweigh the, quote, benefits of it. And we're not taking a purely utilitarian kind of consequentialist mindset when we say that. But right. we do have to take into account the consequences of, of creating something like this, knowing, kind of tying back to what we talked about earlier, that technology is forming us. It's shaping us. It's changing how we think about things, including God, ourselves, and the world around us. There yeah. may and probably will be a point where we, can, we can't pursue this anymore. It's dangerous. This is something we should not be... Uh, pursuing or developing or funding or even maybe utilizing um, because the dangers are far too dangerous and far too, uh, they, they far outweigh a lot of the potential benefits from something like that. Yeah, I, t I tend to agree with that. And, you know, if, if like I, I think I mentioned earlier, if I had my druthers, I'd say, let's put the brakes on it. And I, I'm also a, a keenly aware that there are multiple players across the world who are doing this. And so exactly. in some sense, you have to say there's also bigger than what's going on in our country issues at play and yep. how, how that plays out in the world. And that's a different political or different discussion that has political mm -hmm. uh, angst that comes into that. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I do think there's a question in here. Um, you know, you mentioned about how the technology is forming us. And, you know, your your comment about creating, not only disseminating, but creating this information is just so much easier that in, in essence, it allows a few people with limited resources to have a much larger impact than what they have. Mm -hmm. what, it, what it immediately brought to mind was how social media has changed the nature of discourse that we have. Mm -hmm. Not that there aren't thoughtful discussions, but most conversations out on social media my experience has been that they tend to be very sensationalistic. I'm destroying the opponent. I've wiped them out. You know, it's very, uh, I'm victorious. The other people are vanquished. And what struck me is your conversation about everybody has inherent dignity. And it's like, yes, I may think my thoughts are better. I think my views may actually even be right. But the person I'm interacting with no matter how much they disagree with me, are still created in God's image. Exactly. That changes the way I think about the conversation as opposed to having the medium change the way I think about people. Yep. And so it it does seem to me this how we think about this has tremendous import and consequences to how we carry out, live out a Christian worldview and, and model that for the world. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, that's spot on. And it's almost as if the Bible talks about that, the power of our words and that the idea, I mean, the wisdom literature is full. I mean, one of the things I do with my students is walking through the Proverbs. We do this in our worldview analysis class. Every week we read a couple of Proverbs. It is striking to me just how often, especially Solomon in the Proverbs, speaks of the power of our words, mm-hmm. uh, the way that we control our words, the way that as we interact with others. Um, and you see this, especially James 119 is kind of the verse, I think, of especially Twitter, but really all of social media is the James 119 continually comes to my mind almost every single day now is that we are as people of as the children of God are to be slow to speak, we're to be slow to anger, and we're to be quick to listen. That seems to be the complete opposite of much of social media today, but really the opposite of human nature. We want to prove ourselves. We want to prove our value. We want to show people that we're right, and we may be right, but the way in which we communicate truth matters. And that's actually something that's a key uh, aspect of the wisdom literature, the wisdom tradition, whether it's the book of um, Proverbs and the Psalms and even Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes and getting into some of the New Testament wisdom-like literature like James is that our words matter. And we see this and uniquely embodied in the person and work of Jesus Christ, which I think is fascinating. Mm -hmm. When you see is that he was one who spoke with authority. That's something that happens throughout the gospels, how that he, he's speaking with one with authority. We've never heard someone teach like this. So he's speaking truth, but he's doing so with grace, that balance of truth and grace is not either or it's not which one's more beneficial in the moment. It's not being winsome and you know at the sacrifice, uh, sacrificing truth. Nor is it speaking truth and sacrificing grace. It's actually speaking truth in grace right. and realizing that the person that we interact with, the person, uh, whether it's a philosophical or scientific or uh, ethical conversation that we're having, um, or going into our family, our neighbors, our community, and hey, let's just talk about the digital public square and the idea of uh, the way that we interact with people online. People are not just simply avatars that we can dunk on and say whatever we want to. These are people created in the very image of God, and you will give an account for how you interact with God's people and how you interact not only with God's people in terms of the church, but people who are created in his very image, other human beings, and how you do that. You will give an account for those words, and so as we should cultivate James 1.19 to be slow to speak, You don't always have to be the first one out of the gate uh, to be slow to anger. It's very easy to kind of ramp up the tensions and the anger and the vitriol online, especially as maybe, quote, the other person's doing it. That's not a license to do the same, by the way. Right. So to be slow to anger to be and to be quick to listen. Right. Um, Because one of the things that I think created in the image of God is what does it mean to be human is to cultivating this position of humility. Something I teach my students is called epistemic humility, that we're humble in what we know, but also in the things that we do know uh, to hold them loosely, realizing not loosely in terms of the truth and content, but holding them saying, look, I don't fully and completely and totally understand this, even in my deathbed. And, you know, Lord willing, that's many, many years away. Um, I didn't reach this idea that no one can correct me. I'm still a finite human being that serves an infinite God. So it creates this idea of a humility that I think should be modeled. We see modeled in Jesus and that we're as image bearers. He's the, quote, true image of God that we're created according to. We're to model both speaking truth and grace and not sacrificing one for the other. Now, I really appreciate and we're drawing up on a close here. So maybe uh, 
love to do this again because it's even in our conversation here there have been more topics that have come up that we could go off and engage and explore and so this is just a a very rich in-depth topic but i loved what you had to say and just appreciated our conversation and really hope that uh, you have enjoyed our comment or our conversation today and thank you for joining us and join the discussion in the comments below remember to like this video to subscribe for more content uh, new episodes of Stars, Cells, and God release each Thursday are available here on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. And be sure to share this video with a friend. And remember, the more we know about science, the more we have reasons to believe.